All right, good afternoon. Um, welcome to the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. Uh, my name is Michael Sony. Uh, I uh, am the director of the Fairbanks Center, and it is my privilege to introduce today's session, marking 30 years since the extraordinary events of May and June of 1989. While we have called today's session uh, Tiananmen at 30, of course, these events occurred not just at Tiananmen Square, or even just in Beijing, but in cities all over China. Uh, they cultivate, the, these events culminated, as we all know, on June 4th, 1989, in an act of military suppression that took place also not only or even primarily in the square itself, but throughout the city and beyond. Anyone could have predicted that this year, 2019, would be a sensitive year for anniversaries in China. As Jiang Fan wrote in The New Yorker this week, for the CCP, certain anniversaries teeter between the emblematic and the problematic. As things have unfolded, uh, the year proved far more sensitive uh, for far more anniversaries than we had anticipated. Problematic definitely outweighed emblematic. Uh, besides the 40th anniversary of the establishment of U.S.-China relations, the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act, here at the Fairbanks Center we've held events including a commemoration uh, of the uh, 40, years of, uh, 40 years of reform and opening up, which we co-hosted, co-organized with the Unirule Institute of Economics. And that event, we believe, proved to be one of the very last, if not the very last, public event for that very influential liberal think tank in China. We similarly commemorated the centenary of the May 4th movement uh, with a two-day conference organized by uh, Professor David Wong. Uh, many of you, some of you, like me, were at that conference, and I think many of us who attended that conference were discouraged that as one of our guests, Jeff Wasserstrom, pointed out in his uh, long New York Times op-ed, a century after May 4th, a free and open discussion of that event and its significance remains impossible in China. As with May 4th, so too June 4th. But even in a year of sensitive anniversaries, there's something distinctive about the event we commemorate today, because of course there are no commemorations at all of this event. In China, or no public commemorations of this event at all in China. This is an event that can only be spoken of outside of China. The Fairbanks Center at Harvard is home for China studies in all forms, even and in some ways especially when the topic is sensitive. We value our commitment to the intellectual freedom to pursue questions and research that others might want us to avoid. It's our responsibility to hold events such as today's, both as an academic endeavor in the face of official suppression in China, and as a mark of respect to those whose lives were taken or scarred by the events 30 years ago. The importance of our discussions on the CCP's relationship with the Chinese citizenry is only elevated by the context of other human rights crises that are unfolding in China today, in particular, the current crisis in Xinjiang, reinforces the importance of our persistent pursuit of truth in the face of repression. 
Um, let me just say a couple of words about the ground rules for today's event. I will introduce our moderator in a moment and then ask her to introduce the panelists. Um, uh, today's event is being recorded by the Fairbanks Center for future broadcast. Please, uh, for obvious reasons, um, the, uh, we, we ask that there be no additional recording, no private recording uh, on cell phones and so on, and, and we will come and ask you to, to stop um, if we observe that happening. Um, in a break from the usual Fairbanks Center practice, uh, we will not ask those who ask questions to identify themselves. So you are perfectly free to ask your questions <laughs> anonymously. Um, and I should also add that we will, we will, we will, the, the, the ultimate, whatever form the ultimate broadcast takes, um, only the speakers will be, will be, uh, will be, um, uh, uh, will be recorded for, for broader distribution. So you need have no fears on that score. Uh, let me now uh, begin uh, today's event by introducing our moderator, Professor Rowena Hu, currently uh, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University, uh, the author of the book, uh, Tiananmen Exiles, Voices of the Struggle for Democracy in China, a book which she completed uh, while she was a postdoc here at the Fairbanks Center. Uh, well, also at the Fairbanks Center, she created the freshman seminar, Tiananmen in History and Memory, which uh, was uh, an extraordinarily, extraordinary, successful and important course that she taught for five years from 2010 to 2015. She is an old friend of the Fairbanks Center. It's been, uh, it's our honor to support Rowena's work. So please join me in welcoming Rowena. Thank you so much, Michael, and thank you um, for the, I would like to thank the Fairbanks Center for organizing the event. Um, what Michael said just now, I'm sure uh, for many of us who had, um, I'm sure many of us um, are here, like Professor Cui Weiping in the audience, who had been Tiananmen the whole time in 1989, and Adi, who had been reporting uh, for the Wall Street Journal in 1989. I'm sure it, it means a lot uh, for, for us to be here today. And it's, um, also, as Michael mentioned, uh, we always have special rules when we organize events uh, for, for, the, uh, uh, for the anniversary. Uh, all those years when I organize my student events, I make that rule, and probably that's the reality we have to face. We care, we refuse to forget, uh, but then we face all this fear, uh, even uh, outside China, um, and 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 that's a battle of war against memory that we have been trying to fight against uh, collectively uh, inside and outside China uh, all these years. Um, so I think that's exactly why it's so important for us um, to be to be here uh, today. Um, before I introduce the speakers, I also would like to um, uh, talk about someone who has to be has been very important supporting uh, this work all those years. Uh, he's my dear mentor, uh, Professor Rob Mafagwa, and every time uh, he will be sitting at the front, uh, supporting and encouraging. Uh, he's uh, been a role model uh, for so many of us, uh, as Wang Dan told Diana, uh, Nina just now. Um, and now Rod is gone, uh, but for those of us who are 
determined to follow his steps uh, and his inspirations. And we are going to pick up the job. It's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's daunting. Uh, but he always showed us that we should uh, stood up to stand up to the principles and support not just uh, the Chinese um, uh, uh, just to understand the Chinese politics, uh, to reconstruct history, but also care about the Chinese people, um, um, their lives, and, and China's future. And when Rod, uh, when I told him about this uh, panel, he wrote me excellent news. No longer will you have to do all the work to remember Tiananmen. And I, I'm saving this uh, message uh, to remind myself. And, and I know that Rod is not sitting in the first <laughs> front today, but his spirit is with us in this room, always, as always. Um, so I would like to introduce our first um, speaker, uh, Professor Hao Jian uh, from the Professor uh, uh, from the Beijing Field Academy, and I'm sure it's particularly meaningful uh, for Mr. Ha uh, Professor Hao Jian to be here today because five years ago, when he organized a, a, a private commemoration in his home in Beijing, uh, right afterward, five of them were uh, detained and arrested, and many of you, like Pu Zhiqiang, uh, 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 has been uh, 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 had lost his uh, freedom after that event. Uh, so it's particularly meaning for us for us to welcome him today uh, to speak for us freely and openly on this campus uh, for the first time uh, uh, in since 1989 let's welcome professor Hao Jian. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad the Professor Melkozani updates the Chinese situation for you. The first sentence of my speech is after thirty years. This is the first time to, to commemorate the June 4th incident in public for me. I give my sincere appreciation to Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. Thank you for holding this open discussion. Thank you to all of you, the audience today, I'm happy to have the opportunity to communicate with you and exchange some ideas. The Tiananmen Massacre on June 4th, 1989 was not only was not only us, sorry, a vital milestone in Chinese history but also a historical turning point for the end of the Cold War, the failure of communism. It was a tragic example to people from Eastern Europe, communist countries. It also made people from all over the world know more about the violence nature of a communist totalitarian regime. After 1989, we Chinese people, or 
immense pressure in every aspect of our social life. Many countries are moving towards constitutional democracy and social justice, but China is not. In June 4th incident, the June 4th incident also changed my understanding of the Chinese regime and my personal life. I was at Tiananmen Square on June 3rd, hearing the roar of armored cars. I walked out of Beijing Film Academy's tent. Later that night, a student was shot down in 20 minutes. 20 meters in front of me. When we escaped out of when we escaped out of the Chang'an Avenue, we were still chatting slogans, and the whole street was permeated with smoke with from smoke bombs. In the morning of June 4th, I got a call telling me that my male cousin had not returned home. I immediately went to Fuxing Hospital and saw his name on the list, on the casualty list on the wall. There were dozens of crops on the floor, but I failed to recognize him among those corpses. Maybe because people face change after death, but more likely, I did not want to recognize him among those corpses. In the following days, I went to dozens of other hospitals, opened the refrigerators to check corpses. After half a month, I returned to Fuxing Hospital and found his crop. At that time, his body has turned jet black. <coughs> After the June 4th crackdown, China has suffered from terror. When I ordered this gravestone, I did not dare to put inscriptions in, on it. Only after six years did I hire a stonemason to write the name on it. Tiananmen mothers also went through this process of walking away from fear because they each had family members killed in the June 4th. They become targeted groups and were often followed and harassed by the police. <coughs> on the urn on the stand, Zhang Xinling discovered a note. Zhang Xinling is the, the right. If she find a, a note saying, I have the same destiny as you. This note was left by Yu Weijie. 
they have worked together ever since. Now, Yuiji is a spokesperson of the Tiananmen Mothers. <coughs> I, have been, I have been trying my best to help Tiananmen Mothers to do something, such as attempting to contact and visit bereaved families. Intellectuals of 1989 generation, such as Liu Xiaobo, wrote a lot of joint petitions and uh, lots of articles. In 1995, in 19, Liu Xiaobo and the Tiananmen Mothers presented those petitions. I convinced my uncle and the aunt to come overcome their fear. They signed the joint petition of the Tiananmen Mothers. After the publication of Chapter 08, Liu Xiaobo was arrested by the Chinese authorities. We, his friends, suffered a tough crackdown. When we went to visit Liu Xiaobo's wife, we don't know what to say to her. In April 2009, we hesitated. Shall we continue to speak out in this high-handed political environment? Eventually, we become firm in our decision to commemorate the June 4th incident and speak for it. We thought this is the best support for Liu Xiaobo in prison. So, in April 2009, we secretly convinced a June 4th seminar. We couldn't find a formal meeting place, so we used a meeting room in a restaurant. After the meeting, we published the information and the photos on the internet. Because of the government's control, I made the seminar. Uh, I made the seminar's banner in different stores. You see, I cut it. I cut this banner <laughs> on spot. Yeah, and pasted them together. <laughs> one. Yeah. Uh, during the June 4th, during the early of that of the uh, June that year, I was followed by a policeman and uh, my student. Uh, uh, they find oh. He, you are the student of Hao Jian. Okay, you don't follow Hao Jian. You, he was signed to follow to another professor in Beijing Film Academy, Cui Weiping. You know, this uh, 
commemoration in 2009. You know, here is so crowded. You, it's hard for you to find me because we got no place. Uh, we, we do this in Zhang Xianling's apartment. In two, 2014, a commemoration of the 25th anniversary of June 4th was held in my, at my home. Okay, I limited this because uh, He Xiaoqing has introduced it for you. Oh, this is a topic, uh, that, uh, that seminar in, two, in 2014. <coughs> uh, and uh, you see, uh, after that uh, seminar, Hugh, we offered to take the responsibility. He emphasized to the police that he was the only organizer of the seminar. And uh, also, this is Pu Zhiqiang. a very famous uh, human rights lawyer, and also an intellectual who kept speaking out in public. He is one of the 1989 generation. Oh, as one that. His wife, his life was dramatically changed by the June 4th incident. It was I who asked Pu Zhiqiang attend the June 4th seminar. I felt guilty that about that. So I, I was very surprised that he sent his thanks to me for inviting him. He said that he had been investigated by the police and that it was just a matter of time before he would be sent to prison. He was willing to attend the June 4th seminar at the cost of imprisonment. He believed that he, has the, he had the responsibility to speak for June 4th. He was proud of to do so. Pu Zhiqiang got probationary of three years, during which time he had to wear a monitoring device. When I met with him, he was busy trying to find a power supply to recharge his GPS. Oh, I just I found this picture from the internet. It's not the real one. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Elder Hu Shigen, who attended this meeting, is still in jail. Because of the time limited, I cannot introduce many other individuals and groups. For example, some people labored as thugs by the Chinese government after June 4th incident some of whom were sentenced to death, some of whom were sent 
prison for years. I would. Oh, uh, this is the last year we commemorate <coughs> commemorate our uh, relatives. Uh, yeah, you see a lot of policemen around here. Uh, Sometimes there are more policemen than us. Mm. I would. I will end this speech by showing a bamboo painting by a John Fourth Clark Wen Jian. He was sentenced to seven years imprisonment because of organizing a protest in Beijing. Preserve the bloody memory. Prevent the tragedy from repeating itself. I must do what I should do. We must do what we should do. Thank you. Thank you for suffering from my broken English. <laughs> Professor Hao Jian has published many books. He's eloquent and he's, he's, he knows his work. But when he find out that he would have a chance to talk, speak today, I can remember how many times we communicate and how much time he had worked for this 10 minutes talk. Not because he tried to look good, not because he proved his English is good, or not because he wanted to show that he's, he knows better, but because he wanted to make sure that he used this 10 minutes for the first time in 30 years in his life that he can speak openly uh, to um, our audience and to tell them what happened, and as Michael eloquently uh, spoke at the beginning, uh, so that those voices that have been silenced, those memories that have been erased, and those young lives who cannot speak for themselves would be heard and, and the memory would be remembered. And this was, would be a good time to introduce um, uh, Louisa Lim, uh, who had written this important book, uh, The People's Republic of um, uh, Amnesia, Tianmen Revisited. Uh, as we all know how, how difficult it is to work on sensitive topics like Tiananmen, so it's really courageous of her uh, to pick up this topic and to write this book. And she, um, in her important book, she also mentioned the, uh, the, the, the crackdown in, in, in Sichuan, in Chengdu, which had, had not been covered. So this is uh, very important for us to know that not just in Tiananmen, in Beijing, that the killing happened, but also in other places. Uh, so let's welcome Luisa. Thank you, Rowena, and thank you, Michael, and everyone at the Fairback Center for organizing this. And particularly, thank you, Hardien, for describing what the act of memory is like in, inside China today. I'm going to talk about uh, Beijing's amnesia on June the 4th, how it's being in, enforced and ex exported. And I'm going to start with words written by Liu Xiaobo, China's Nobel Peace Laureate who died uh, in police custody from cancer. Uh, as you probably know, he was one of those who helped broker the truce that allowed students to leave the square in 1989. And after that, every year he wrote an elegy to Tiananmen. And these are words from his 2002 elegy, but I think they sum up Beijing's success 
in erasing Tiananmen from the collective memory, and they were so well illustrated by Ha Jen's slides. He said, um, all roadways are blocked, all tears are under surveillance, all fresh flowers are shadowed, all memories are purged, all tombstones are still blank. 17 years later, 17 years after he wrote those words, they're still true, and even more so than before, I think. Um, the author Yen Lenk described amnesia in China as a state-sponsored sport. And one of the most popular events in that sport is forgetting Tiananmen. I wrote in my book about how China's managed to erase the collective memory of June the 4th um, so successfully that when I went around campuses asking students if they could identify the picture of Tank Man, only 15 out of 100 students were able at that time um, to identify the picture. And it really shows how memory has become so politicized. But I think since then, the control over history and memory has only tightened. We've seen history being legislated with new laws to protect um, heroes and martyrs. And increasingly, private remembrances are being penalized, as Hao Jian illustrated. Um, but I think what's really interesting is now we're also seeing attempts to export that amnesia, and we're increasingly seeing Western corporations lured by the Chinese market that are doing Beijing's bidding and censoring content about Tiananmen, both inside and outside China. So just a couple of examples that have happened in recent, uh, in recent years. Uh, just in the last month, we saw Apple removing Tiananmen-related songs by canto pop stars, including Jackie Zheng from insi inside China, from the catalog there. Um, over the past few years, there have been a couple of incidents where LinkedIn has censored users outside China from posting content on June the 4th. And they even, uh, the spokesman even explained this by saying it was a move to create value for our members. And then we saw uh, the China Quarterly, a scholarly magazine, a scholarly journal being uh, given a list of titles to take down. And out of the more than 300 titles um, that the authorities asked uh, the China Quarterly to remove from its uh, website inside China, it's interesting that 10% of those had Tiananmen or June the 4th in their title. And another case uh, which is particularly interesting it was reported by the Wall Street Journal about a Chinese education company called VIP Kids. And they fired two American teachers for talking about Tiananmen and Taiwan in their online classes. The interesting thing about this is that the teachers were not in China. They were in America. They were teaching online to students in China. So think about that. This is a company that employs 60,000 teachers in the US and Canada, but mainly teaching Chinese kids. Um, so in this way, we're seeing those closed discursive spaces of Chinese classrooms being exported overseas. And we're also seeing this sort of sustained and coordinated campaign to influence Western reporting on the Tiananmen anniversary. So I recently done a survey of journalists' anniversary reporting, and three quarters of the respondents in my survey 
re uh, reported experiencing harassment of various types from the authorities. Uh, the most obvious type was uh, being blocked from going to Tiananmen Square. That happened to 60% of respondents. And almost the same number had access to sources blocked. A fifth of journalists had their sources harassed or detained. And the same number also um, had complaints about their coverage. And it, even in the harassment, there's all kinds of innovation. Uh, recently, uh, there have been uh, pictures that you've probably seen of at Tiananmen Square increasingly being blanketed by security cameras. And uh, often these are sort of AI-powered facial recognition cameras. But there are also very low-tech methods that are being used. And in 2009, uh, there was a particular year when uh, the innovation was super low-tech. So the security forces, plainclothes policemen, took to the square with umbrellas. And they would literally stand between cameramen and the journalists to ruin their pieces to camera so they couldn't report from the square. So all of this is a coordinated campaign from different arms of the government, which really, it limits the reporting and it limits the type of story that gets told because access to those people who remember what happened to those memory carriers is, uh, is limited. And so we are seeing um, in this way uh, the process of forgetting the actual movement itself being accelerated and exported because journalists can only write one story, the story of repression. They can't write any other stories. So uh, Philip Graham very famously said, journalists write the first draft of history. But here, through these kind of attempts, I think we're seeing a repressive state which is slowly and very patiently redacting and retroactively editing that draft of history so that we forget in the West, we forget the movement, we only remember that act of repression. So my book came out five years ago, and in the time since then, I've talked in classrooms um, in, around the world, in the US, the UK, Australia, Germany, Hong Kong, about Tiananmen. It's been really interesting because I've seen in the questions that mainland students have asked um, almost a shift. So at the beginning, students were often quite defensive and they would ask questions like, um, you, you know, all countries do things like this. What makes China any different? Or sometimes they would ask, um, you know, China's economic growth today, its success today is based on what the government did back then. Uh, you know, surely it was worth it. But recently I've seen another line of questioning, which I think is uh, very interesting. Um, and I'm going to read you a quote from a student who asked a question in Sydney who said, why do we have to look back to this time in history? Why do you think it will be helpful to current and nowadays China, especially our young generation? Do you think it could be harmful to what the Chinese government calls the harmonious society? <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? The Chinese government has succeeded in making knowledge dangerous. It succeeded in seeding that idea that knowledge can have a price and that price can be too high. I think Liu Xiaobo's words are more true than ever today as we see these new methods of social control like the social credit system. And we see the price of memory becoming more and more concrete. And we see silence spreading through channels, including Western ones. 
Recently, some of the most poignant acts of memory that we've seen emerging from China have actually been completely wordless. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but there's this astonishing 11-second video that emerged this year of um, a young man reenacting the tank man photograph in the Beijing Military Museum. So he's standing in front of a real uh, Chinese army tank and he's holding two bags, uh, one plastic bag in either hand. No words at all. Uh, on the 26th anniversary, an activist called Du Yan Lin uh, went to Tiananmen Square and he opened a black umbrella on the square and he was immediately detained for picking quarrels and stirring up trouble. I think this just shows that in a time when words have become dangerous, even the lack of words no longer offers any protection. And just as a final thought, I just wanted to underline one thing. I'm not an activist, I'm a journalist. But I think the success of Beijing's state-imposed amnesia means that any public discussion of Tiananmen has become a challenge to Beijing's narrative. And because of this, there's not really any way to talk about Tiananmen and not challenge amnesia. So anyone who talks about Tiananmen, who remembers it publicly, who writes about it a lot, by default, you become seen as an activist. And I'd also like to point out that I think this reflects Beijing's success in setting the parameters of discussion, even well beyond its borders. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Louisa. Um, I think uh, as you, Louisa uh, mentioned, like um, there's all these efforts to make sure that we, we, we forget and, and we would no longer remember. But the fact that so many of you are here today, your presence already showed that we collectively refuse to forget and we still remember. I saw so many faces, probably I only, uh, would see each time when there's a Tiananmen event uh, and, and, and for maybe for over a decade. Um, and people often ask me, how can you still continue after all this? And, and I think it's these faces that I always remember uh, when, when, when struggling in darkness uh, because I know that I'm not alone. So many people actually are doing the same thing in their own way to remember and to refuse to forget. And the beauty of today, I think, is uh, today we are able to see so many of the people maybe in the past, you saw that they were uh, struggling there, they were in person, they were being harassed, they were being uh, 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 tortured, and, and then now they are in, and at that time we were not able to um, to tell them how much we care. But today, we are in the same room, in the same space, share space, and our identity are defined as someone that uh, who refused to forget. And, and for this note, I want to introduce our next speaker, uh, Mr. Wang Dan, or Dr. Wang Dan, who got his PhD from Harvard here. Um, of course, you all know that in 1989, he's, he topped the 21 most wanted list, um, and he was in prison and later exiled. Um, um, I remember uh, the first time I managed to go to Beijing and visit his mom, um, and she kept me for dinner, and she told me that uh, um, uh, she always remembered the image when he was carrying his school bag and biking um, to school, and she always wished that image uh, would appear in the window again. And that was more than a decade ago that she say that to me. And now um, Wang Dan still cannot return to China, uh, but he's here with us today, and he's now the founder and the uh, director for uh, uh, the, um, what's that called? Uh, 
Dialogue China. He's hoping that we can engage, continue to engage uh, dialogues with China. Let's welcome Dr. Wang Dan. Uh, I need your pardon me to allow me to sit. I'm not feeling very well, and uh, sitting here make me more chiral because for me, like go back to home, it's really great to back to the Fairbanks Center where I grow up here, not physically, but spiritually. Uh, and I thank Michael and Dan and uh, Joanna to make this possible. It's very important to have this event to remember what happened in 1989. I can still remember uh, 10th anniversary of 1989 also happened at Harvard. We have a much bigger event at the President Hall. And both the speaker Nancy Pelosi and the widow of Martin Luther King Jr. attend. <laughs> After 20 years, so many things changed and make me speechless. But I have to speak something here. Um, due to the time limit, uh, I will focus only one question. This is a hypothetical question, which is, if the 1989 democracy movement had succeeded, what could China look like today? Answer this question, I think, first require us to define what is a success for the 1989 democracy. Because I think one of the biggest misunderstanding people have of the 1989 democracy movement is expressed by the question like this. If you, they pointed to me, if you take the power as the president of China, would you have been better than Chinese Communist Party or Xi Jinping? I think it's a really wrong question. I, I can't imagine I can be the leader of China. I even cannot control my classmate. <laughs> <laughs> so this high-toned challenge is, in fact, completely bogus. Because in 1989, the student never mentioned replacing the Communist Party or proposed taking power ourselves. And regardless of how the 1990 democracy movement would have developed, there was no possibility of student leaders becoming national leaders. Success in 1989 for us means uh, achieving our objectives. And what were that? The political position of the 1989 democracy movement were first proposed in the we call the Seven Pawns Petition that student representatives, including me, myself, submitted to the leaders of CCP. Those seven points requirement, including uh, re-evaluation of uh, the euros and the achievement of uh, former General Secretary Hu Yaobang, and uh, uh, completely negating the campaign, so-called uh, el eliminate spirit spiritual Pollution and the campaign against the bourgeoisie liberalism, and publishing the salary and all other forms of income of state leaders, etc., etc. That's our goal. If we can achieve those goals, that is success. So there's no category like being a national leader. Uh, however, I believe that success of 1989 democracy movement should be measured against the two very important conditions raised during the May 13th students' hunger strike. 
because hunger strike transformed the whole student movement into a popular mass movement, or, or we call democracy movement. And from then on, the full force of nationwide support focused on demanding that the government accept the demand of students in their hunger strike. This implies that if the 1989 democracy movement had succeeded, the government would have automatically accepted these two demands by the hunger strike students. Some people criticize our student, student movement are very radical. Let's say if this is radical, 3,000 students sacrificed their life in Tiananmen Square, only want two achievement. We only have two requirements. If the government take those two requirements, of course we will withdraw from the Tiananmen Square. And uh, two demand is one, we demand that the government promptly engage in a, a concrete dialogue on an equal footing with the dialogue delegation of the people's, of Beijing's university and other universities. This is a dialogue, which, that's why I call it our new think tank, Dialogue China. I still have this dream, dialogue. We just ask a dialogue. We use our life to ask a dialogue. Is this radical? And our second demand is, we demand that the government fairly evaluate this student movement and affirm it as a patriotic and a democratic student movement, not a turmoil. <laughs> I, we hope the government can change their tone in the uh, April 26th editorial. Uh, don't see us as a, a criminal. We are patriotic. We hope our country can be better. Is this, is this requirement really radical? So when somebody criticized the student at that time, radical, is that fair? You can think about it. Of course, I have my answers. But discussing the question of what if 1989 democracy movement had succeeded, therefore demand discussing the effect on China's uh, future. If the government had begun a dialogue with the student and had affirmed the student movement as patriotic in nature, I feel it would have had the following three main effects if they accept our demand. First, if 1989 democracy movement had succeeded, the reformist factions within the party, represented by former General Secretary Zhao Ziyang, would certainly have been fortified. It's common knowledge that Zhao Ziyang was the senior CCP leader who most inclined toward market economic reforms, and also the most open-minded leaders. If Zhao Ziyang had greater policy-making authority, I believe he would surely have led China to undertake more profound marketization reforms in the economic sphere. And this trend could be seen in the bankruptcy law initially initiated in 1988. In other words, if 1989 student movement had succeeded, China would not have fallen in social unstability like what happened today, rather would have stepped up the pace of economic reform with even greater result. Secondly, if the 1989 democracy movement had succeeded, the political reform 
were launched, uh, which launched in 1988, 1988 would have been eased forward with the stronger support of a popular view, especially the part of freedom of the price. That is to say, economic reform would have been promoted in a better environment of supervision by public opinions. Today, even Chinese Communist Party acknowledged that expanding the power of supervision by public opinion is the only way to effectively contain the spread of corruption throughout the country. So if the expansion of freedom of speech had begun back in 1989, corruption would not have spread throughout the whole China system as it has today. Thirdly, if 1989 democracy movement had succeeded, it would have created a model for the dialogue, the dialogue between state and the society, which is so important, not for the past, even for the future of China. In fact, the political report of CCP's 13th National Congress drafted under another open-minded high-level officials, Bao Tong's leadership, established consultation and a dialogue with the public as the focal orientation of political reform. And when the student called for dialogue, they were effectively echoing this demand for political reform. In today's China, the prospect for the government and the people being of one heart and mind has vanished. And the people have lost all confidence in the government. They are collectively give up their responsibility for this country. And I think the government also give up the responsibility for the country too. This is the main reason why so many social conflict automatically adopt a violent method. When reform become uh, a game between government and society, a dialogue between state and society becomes a fundamental safeguard for social stability. So only, they, only then can the two sides make an effort to ensure a smooth and a steady transformation. Taiwan's experience provided the best reference of this. So even 1989 democracy movement had succeeded. We can imagine that it would have provided a much, much better environment for reform for China. And I think this is the question I want to discuss due to the time limit. I just focus on this question, but before I stop, I have something to say here personally. I want to say that what happened in 1989 had a critical effect on my personal life, mainly manifested in the fact that having this history, there are some things not left entirely to my choice today such as the idea of promoting social progress or, or living up to certain expectations. As an ordinary student, I could have chosen a personal life or a public life. But now, I have no choice but to live under the public eye. It's hard to see whether this is my good or bad fortune, but I feel I can only face and accept this. Furthermore, if, if the same thing 
were to happen again, I believe I would still not turn back because embracing social ideals when one is young is not a matter of a rational choice. It can almost be considered as an emotional necessity, necessary choice. I have to say that this emotion is really good and also time sensitive. When one is older, it's very, as older as me, it's very difficult to experience the passion of youth. Human, human life is really limited. And I would not give up the opportunity to draw my life experience to the future of my country and the social, my, my social ideals, even if only temporarily. That's why I have absolutely no regret for the price I have paid, which is seven years in prison and cannot go back to my country probably forever. I think this is my own life choice, and I will continue to go forward without any hesitation. Thank you very much. in those years when I was working on my boat with Wang Dan and many of the exiles, uh, one thing in our group discussion one day when we were having our shared discussion and we were saying being idealistic in China means you are very selfish because we chose what we have to do for our country but our family, my mom, my mom, his mom cannot choose not to be our family members. Uh, the price that you have to pay uh, for your idealism. Um, so, and, and Wang Dan made a very good point, important point earlier. In 1989, we were not, students were not looking for a revolution. We were not looking for regime change. Uh, two best examples, uh, Wang Dan mentioned the seven demands, right, uh, on the day of Hui Aobang's uh, uh, funeral outside the People's uh, Great Hall, uh, the student, uh, three students were kneeling <laughs> the seven demands kneeling down, begging the government to come out and listen to them. So that's one example. The second example, of course, the three men who throw paintings on Mao's portrait. And immediately afterward, they were taken uh, to the police by the students. Uh, they, the students turned them in because they wanted to show that we are not trying to uh, give you trouble. We are just your loyal kids, hoping that you will listen to us. And I interviewed one of these men uh, two months ago in Indianapolis. He had been bitten so badly, he totally lost his mind. He's now mentally disabled, Yu Dongyue. Uh, the only thing that he, he only could say a few incomplete sentence, but there's one sentence, he said it again and again, and it was stuck in my mind. He said that uh, he kept repeating the same sentence. Uh, is, this is not done by the people, this is not done by the students. And I didn't understand what he was talking about, so I went back to my uh, archive materials. It turned out there's a big photo in Tiananmen Square, the day when the students took them to the, uh, turned them to the police. Uh, the students had a big banner in both Chinese and English. <laughs> this is not done by the students, this is not done by the people. Meaning that uh, these are troublemakers, but we are not. We are just your loyal kids. Uh, we are on, your, on the sign of the government. If the students had known that just 10 days later, 200,000 army soldiers and equipped with AK-47 and tanks would be coming, maybe they would have changed their mind uh, to turn this man in. But, but that's just two examples uh, that 
to show that they were not looking for a revolution. Um, our next speaker, uh, Professor Jeff Wachstrom, uh, he has been uh, very supportive to 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 the, um, helping uh, the younger generation and helping us to to understand and do this work uh, on China. So, and he's he's uh, uh, of course a, a, a important professor in the field, a chancellor professor of history at the University of California, Irwin, and also he had published this important book to understand China in the twenty first century. That's the title of the book. So, uh, let's welcome. Uh, Jeff, uh, thanks. So this is also a homecoming for me. I, um, I got my master's here at Harvard and was invited back for the first time to give a public talk was right after finishing a dissertation at Berkeley on the history of student movements and to speak on 1989, an event with Wur Kaishi, another of the student um, leaders then. Um, I feel very humbled and I find it difficult to think of how to speak after hearing these inspiring um, talks by people who've, who've lived and documented and um, pushed back against memory so much. Um, I'm going to try to take a, a different take on this um, through, of all things, some works of fiction. Um, one of the events that has stayed with me a lot in thinking through 1989's meaning was in 2003, I was invited to speak at um, Heidelberg College, a liberal arts college that was having a bonding experience for the incoming freshmen. They were all watching the film, The Gate of Heavenly Peace, which is an inspiring film about 1989 that I had the privilege to be a consultant on. And they asked me if I would come and, and speak to the, the freshmen at a kind of orientation about that. And I said, yes, immediately. Um, they said, uh, then they called me a week before the event and said, by the way, the students who are incoming class are also reading a novel together as a shared experience. That novel is Brave New World. I hope you can talk about that as well. And my first thought was, damn, why couldn't it have been 1984? As we've heard, 1984 is uh, the, the book that introduced the idea of a memory hole, which is where the Chinese Communist Party has sought to put uh, Tiananmen. It's it, newspeak, all kinds of things about the control of memory. Um, Orwell's 1984 described the reign of oppression being the boot on the face over and over again. All of these things come to mind when we think about the suppression of, the, of 1989 and the official efforts to forget it, to make people forget it. But then I read uh, Brave New World, which I hadn't read since a teenager. I didn't remember anything about it from reading as a teenager, except there was this drug called Soma that made you feel good all the time. <laughs> and there were these very distracting, somewhat pornographic movies you watch called Feelies. But I reread it, and I thought about this, and I thought about what had happened in China since 1989 and how the Chinese Communist Party, in part, had stayed in power. And it had done it, or, um, Orwell's vision was the boot on the face. Huxley's vision was ruled by distraction and playing to people's pleasures and hedonisms. And in many ways, since 1989, the Chinese Communist Party has stayed in power, in part, by a combination of these kinds of things, blended. I'm not the only one who's thought about these um, together. As far back as the 1950s, Huxley was saying, actually, in some parts of the world, you see a mix and match of these two techniques, of Orwell 
his former student at Eden, and his own um, vision for that. So that changed my way of thinking about 1989 and post-1989, and I think it's still there, the way in which, to some degree, um, people in China are kept in, in place. People resist in all kinds of interesting, um, daring ways, but when they don't, some of it is distraction and um, hedonism, materialism, consumerism, as well as, as fear. Then um, in 2014, I got um, wrapped up in and excited by the umbrella movement in um, Hong Kong. And once again, there was um, an Orwell book that was brought up. The students, when they were about to protest, started reading an Orwell book, but not 1984. Animal Farm. Animal Farm, if you boil it down to, it's often seen as a, a critique of Stalinism, but actually what it is in many ways is an allegory about uh, a case in which you have a revolution that's supposed to do away with old forms of oppression, and then the new people in power are just like what the old people in power were. So in part, for Hong Kong, it was after the end of British colonialism, we had a new order, and it actually seems very much like a new kind of colonialism, this time from Beijing rather than from London. And I've been thinking about Animal Farm a lot since then. It wasn't one that was on my radar screen. And I've been thinking about it with 1989 and actually as far back as 1919. And I think about it with what's going on in China right now, um, including the things that Michael brought up um, Xinjiang, I mean, one of the things that the Chinese Communist Revolution was supposed to do was do away with the kind of imperialism that was associated with the Japanese um, invasion of China, in which the Japanese had said in Manchuria, these people are backward to become modern. They need us to be um, civilizing them. We, they need us to be remaking them, reforming them. And in many ways, that's now what Beijing is saying to Xinjiang and Tibet is what the Japanese um, empire was saying to parts of China and parts of other parts of Asia at the time, we want to remake you. So this is a case in which the Chinese Communist Party has become like the pigs who took over um, the farm, an animal farm, a mirror image in some ways of what, um, what the oppressor, what, uh, what the villains are of the thinking. <laughs> In 1989, there was a strong element of that as well, actually, even though it's not typically brought up. Um, one of the posters the students brought up showed Deng Xiaoping as a kind of empress dowager figure operating from behind the scenes, controlling power. The suggestion was that's how the old China was supposed to be. The new China was not supposed to be like that. When I was on a 25th anniversary uh, of Tiananmen panel with Wang Chaohua, another of the student leaders, she said one thing that people don't always appreciate about what led up to the protests of 1989 was the disgust that people felt when Deng Xiaoping um, purged um, or demoted Hu Yaobang. It's always thought Hu Yaobang had supported student movements. He was, he was put down. She said part of it was he was saying, I have a chosen successor, but now I'm just changing that. That was a throwback to Mao who kept changing his successors. Once again, this was supposed to be a new era, but the, the rulers were acting surprisingly like the old era. Again, it was the kind of animal farm syndrome. You can go back as far, this is the 100th anniversary of the May 4th movement. May 4th was about all kinds of things. It was a critique of imperialism, all kinds of things. 
Um, but among other things, it was also a sense that a revolution had taken place that was supposed to change everything, but in many ways, the same patterns were recurring. The 1919 protests were what started the May 4th movement, but movements also often have precursors. Before 1989, there was 1986. Before the Umbrella Movement in 2014, there was a protest in 2012. Before the 1919 protests in China, there were 1915 protests in China. Those protests were in part about demands that Japan was making on the warlords and the warlords would begin to. But it was also the year that Yuan Shikai, see if this sounds familiar to anybody thinking about today, <laughs> Yuan Shikai, who was the president of a Republic of China that was supposed to be completely unlike the old order, set himself up as an emperor who could rule for life. So I think if we think about some of the frustrations that show up in these many different stages from 1919 up to 19, uh, into 2019, when at Tsinghua University, Xu uh, Zhangrun has been um, come under attack for being a critical intellectual, talking in part about Xi Jinping replicating the patterns that were supposed to be part of an old era, including doing away with term limits, now, most recently, we have the talk of sending down youth, all of these things that seems throwback to a time that was supposed to be gone. Now, I don't want to say that it's, it's kind of odd to say, well, why am I talking about all of these? Um, why am I only talking about books by British writers who went to Eden as ways of understanding China? <laughs> but you don't need to look outside, because Animal Farm by my lights is the great novella of the 20th century that talks about politics written in English. The great novella written about politics written in Chinese was The True Story of Ah Kyu by Lu Shun, a person of the May 4th generation, a person that the students of 1989 sometimes cited, one Chinese writer who sometimes will still be cited in Hong Kong. And The True Story of Ah Kyu, part of it is about a revolution that didn't end up changing um, things other than who exactly was bullying ordinary people. And so I think we can see in this kind of trend, and it's not just, of course, um, in China that you see this kind of frustration um, with a revolution that claims to be about creating um, something that's completely new, but falls into these bad old patterns of that. And you can think of this as a recurring cry of, of Chinese, um, Chinese speaking out against a flaw in an order, often in a very uh, kind of effort to be a loyal opposition, but finding it impossible to have space for a loyal opposition from the days of Chen Duxiu and other founders of a new culture movement on up uh, to Xu Zhengrun. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Jeff. I think I think the worst thing is uh, China is not just uh, having all of these uh, problems uh, similar in history, but they also the CCP has been exporting uh, many of its values and influence and interference outside China uh, to uh, uh, in, uh, with its uh, so-called model of China model of governance with a hybrid of uh, capital. Uh, 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 state capitalism and authoritarian control, and it's more about money and power, and nothing matters. And 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 let's hope that we would not let that uh, 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 win over, and we would keep our intellectual freedom. Um, so. Um, 
we would we would be able to if any of you have any uh, comments on each other or questions we can do that otherwise shall we open the floor because um i see we have lots of audience uh, who who would have very interesting people in the audience who would have questions shall we open the floor or anyone would like to jump on each other okay good so let's open the floor uh, for uh, Q&A then as we mentioned earlier no need to identify who you are uh, if you are sent by the CCP yes maybe <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you all very much. Um, so my question is about, um, could uh, there be another student protest uh, that happened in Tiananmen? Uh, not so much talking about the massacre, but could there even be a protest happening again, uh, thinking that you know, right now the censorship technologies in China have become so advanced, but on the other hand, there are protests like the, uh, you know, students protesting for labor rights. Yeah, so could, could the Tiananmen protests happen again? Yes. Thank you. Jeff? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the Chinese Communist Party has developed very sophisticated methods to try to minimize the chance of, of that happening. And particularly what they've tried to prevent is any kind of protest that spreads from one social group to another. Um, there's been a clampdown very much on those students because in part they're trying to connect to workers. Um, there are protests in China all, all the time. But, and the protests, some of them are, are, are tolerated if they're in one locale whereas 1989 spread across the country. If they're one social group, Tiananmen spread across social groups. So there certainly are protests, but there's a very uh, specific one. So we both need to think about the fact of the creativity that people do to get around censorship and other things. One thing we didn't mention, one kind of protest that's happened recently is feminist protests, including the Me Too movement. Uh, when you are not allowed to use the words me too on the web, they started putting rice bunny, me too. Um, so there is this great, um, you know, hung, it's not that the desire to protest has gone away, but the, the intensity with which uh, things are stamped down upon whenever they um, seem to be spreading is something that so far, you never say never. Because the one thing I've learned studying student movements is before big student movements happen, people are often saying there could never, this group, this generation wouldn't lead a protest movement. We saw that in America a year and a half ago. This generation's a bunch of selfish millennials, uh, post-millennials just looking at their, their cell phones. And then we had the biggest youth-led protests in decades after the Parkland shootings. So never write off a generation but I think the odds are incredibly stacked against um, things right now. I think there's also an economic argument against that so many young Chinese are so focused on making enough money to get married, you know, finding a job, buying a house. And they realize that, you know, getting involved in politics is not going to help you achieve any of those goals. So uh, I think people even talk about it as a kind of economic stability maintenance, that everybody's energies are focused in this one direction. And I, again, probably that's a lesson that the Communist Party learned really, you know, that 
it has managed to impose really well on young people that, you know, political mobilization and political protest really doesn't pay. So I think that also would be something that acts against another, another student movement anytime soon. And certainly if you talk to, as I'm sure you have young students in China, people just aren't that interested in politics. They're much more interested in buying the next iPhone or, um, you know, how, how, to, how to find a job, how to find an apartment, where to find a husband or wife. You know, those are the concerns that I think obsess people today. Robert, I still have my hope on young generation, actually, because I believe, I believe democracy based on human nature, also based on human nature of a young generation. When I teach in Taiwan, I have chance to meet a lot of students that come from mainland China. And I realize one thing is really interesting. Everybody come to the, the first day when they arrive in Taiwan and they have access to the internet, they key in the keyword June Force or German Massacre. I mean, there's one characteristic of young generation, which is curiosity. You know, the curiosity always cue totalitarianism. If you keep this kind of curiosity, you want to know the truth. That's a young generation character. As old as me, I, I lost all my curiosity. I'm, I'm already <laughs> know a lot of things about young generation. So I, be, I believe in the young generation's human nature. So I still have my hope. I, I, Hao Jian, do you have anything yeah. to add? Oh. Uh, if you talk about the demonstration on Tiananmen Square, I cannot uh, find any sign. Uh, you know, in China, the civilians is everywhere, and with the face recognized uh, system. Um, uh, but I believe the ordinary people want keep their rights, keep their money, Keep that freedom. Uh, in fact, I believe you can, if you read on some uh, internet or WeChat or Weibo, I believe the civil movement happen every day, but not uh, a demonstration, not uh, the movement as you imagine. Uh, even in college or university, there are some students, uh, they want to make some union in the factory. Uh, they, they, they said, oh, I believe Marxism, but their action is being forbidden. Nothing, yeah, not, not about Marxism or capitalism. So uh, I believe we should change our the thinking, not the so crowded demonstration. Maybe the ordinary people everywhere in China, even in China. And uh, by the way, uh, about we. Uh, we want to keep the memory about uh, June 4th. Uh, a lot of people uh, talk about June 4th in, <coughs> on internet or WeChat. 
use metaphor or ambiguous language. Uh, we create a lot of liu um, si um, uh, uh, or something like May thirty fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I must emphasize fighting is happened every day. I I think the price for uh, people are trying to the price is higher and higher. It's not like uh, we talk about eighty six and eighty seven. After the eighty six eighty seven, the student movement uh, after Hu Xiao Hu Yaobang was ousted, then there's still another chance for eighty nine for students to came out. But that the in, the political environment is totally changed. Uh, uh, you look, you see all those Marxism study group who tried to support the workers recently, right, in Beijing, and they were been uh, they have been arrested. And the ordinary uh, citizens uh, who try to um, commemorate, for example, the the four men who have these uh, liquor labels, jiu uh, 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 labels, and they also have been sentenced. So, so you have to pay a heavy price uh, when you try to organize all kinds of events. Uh, and another thing is, if, I think that if they keep doing this, um, next time, if something like Tiananmen happened, it would not be out of love, out of hope, out of faith, but it would be out of anger, out of frustration, and out of grievances. Maybe that's something that re would be really sad uh, uh, if yeah, they, yeah, sure. Can I add one more thing? Uh, I think young generation change very quick. I know a lot of people feel disappointed about young generation nowadays in China. But think about what happened in 1989. In 1987, when I enrolled in Beijing University, a lot of my classmates, they just play card. They prepare for the English exam, want to go to United States. Even me, myself, go to Beijing City to learn breaking dance. <laughs> but then, 1989, everybody go to street. That's young generation. Yeah, I debated this with Wang Dan a long time ago about this. Uh, the four four thing, right? Uh, Tao Pai Ma Pai, uh, praying Ma Jiao, uh, uh, trying to get Tofu and dancing in 1989. That's why. Don't ask me to dance. I already forget. <laughs> that's why he's. That's why he's always hopeful about the younger generation. But I think the regime has been had learned a big lesson to after 1989. So in 89, when all the, the college doors are locked, students still find a way to go out. So then they try to make sure the next time everything, when all the doors are open, they would not still choose not to go out and protest. If they protest, it will be defending the government. So that's something that uh, uh, I think I would like to keep in mind too about the changing um, uh, 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 <laughs> political context as well as the, the way the younger generation, the values they had. But even with that, I, I'm still long-term optimistic. Uh, I agree with Jeff. Uh, every time when we see something big happen, big changes happen the day before, people would say that it's impossible. But then when something big happened the next morning on the street, everybody is telling you that that's inevitable. So it, um, I, I, I study history and I believe in history and I think history is on our side. Eddie. You just blew my cover by saying my name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You don't look like a young Chinese student who might yeah, get no, in I'm, trouble. I'm, yeah. I'm probably okay. Um, so I have a question for Wang Dan. I first met you in 1988. Oh, really? When you were leading those amazing salons at Peking University with uh, another person who is a hero of mine, Feng Li Chir. Um, but you were, you were doing an exercise, if we had succeeded, what would that have looked like? What would have happened? So I want to ask a different question. If there had not been a crackdown, on June 3rd, June 4th, 
what would have happened. My memory is that, you know, by late May of that year, there were fewer students, certainly from Beijing. Many students were going back to campus. Yes, there were students coming from outside of Beijing to have the experience in the capital but that the movement was losing steam. I remember I was a foreign correspondent. Many people, including myself, left China in late May, finally to get some vacation after covering the movement since the end of April, because it seemed to be winding down. It seemed to be losing steam. Then the government sends in troops unarmed first that brings everyone in Beijing out to the streets. The next night they come in with the tanks. It almost seemed that they were uh, trying to create uh, a rebellion that could be suppressed in order to reconcile the power struggle that was happening. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on too long, but my question is, if there had not been the crackdown, what would have happened? What would the students have done? How long would it have gone on? Okay. Um, well, since we, you know me, you, you know in the end of May, we already proposed withdrawal from Tiananmen Square. But uh, I have to see, in reality, even other student leaders like Chai Ling or, or Feng Chongde or Li Lu accept our proposal. I do not think we can really ask students to withdraw from Tiananmen Square. It's really difficult. You know, it's not about the students of Beijing. Most of Beijing students are already back to campus or home. But we have more and more students come from all over the country, other provinces, they, they do not want to withdraw from Tiananmen Square. They just arrived the first day. A lot of people, a <laughs> lot of students, just the first day. So it's almost impossible. I don't think it's fair to criticize student leader like Chiling that to reject to withdraw, because I know it's almost impossible. But answer your question, if we have this chance to withdraw from the Tiananmen Square as our plan, we went back to campus to continue to do what we call the Xiaoyuanmingzhu campus democracy, or democracy in campus. That which means, for me, for me myself, I, my only hope is if we come back to campus, we will keep one requirement that allow us to elect our own student association's leader. That's our requirement if we come back to the campus. But again, I, I don't think a student can be pursued because the government, they never accept our two requirements. I don't know if they can answer your question. Just a so-called Xiaoyuanmingzhu, which is a democracy in campus, that's our next step if we can withdraw from campus square. Anyone would like to add? Okay, um, I think also there's a, a new, I, I know Adi, we talk a lot, a lot when I invited you to my class and then we, we mentioned that, uh, that that's a possibility if if they had rejoined, what would have happened? Uh, but there's some uh, recent uh, discussions by Xu Xiaokang and Chen Xiaoya, and then they said that according to some of the unknown sources documents, and actually Deng Xiaoping had already made up his mind to have the crackdown as long as uh, April, that's why, uh, right after the April 26th editorial. So it really doesn't matter what the students were going to do, they, they were determined that the, the army is going to come in, and I have been asking for sources, but of course they are not sure uh, uh, yet, but, but that could be a, another point that it really doesn't matter what they had decided to do, the students had decided to do, uh, what would have changed, because uh, it looks like Deng was very upset about what's going on, uh, even as early as April. I, I have one more uh, opinion here. Is, uh, I think there will be crackdown anyway, 
in this one. Even those students withdraw from Tim's school. What, what, what is April 26th editorial? And so back to that time, the government already made their mind to crack down student movement. So if we withdraw, we, they, maybe they're not so bloody, but there must be anyway, another way to crack down students. Thank you very much. And I have a question to Professor Hao Jian. I read a press read news from about you in Apple Daily in Hong Kong yesterday. I wondering when and where you got the interview with Hong Kong. And also today you made a speech about June 4 outside of China. Is this a critical to Chinese government? And if you go back to China, do you have uh, any trouble with the Chinese government? <laughs> and if yes, and what kind of trouble will have? <laughs> Jeez. Oh. What kind of trouble? Uh, mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sorry. I answer your last question first. <laughs> the, my answer for your last question, what I will, uh, got what kind of trouble I will get? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we know. Oh, I, I will go back to China. I will. I, I, here, I'm just a visiting scholar. Uh, and uh, for your uh, early question, I accepted the interview in last uh, in the beginning of this year in Beijing, at my home. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of media prepared that uh, uh, reporter about this city uh, anniversary. Uh, there are three uh, for foreign media want in view me. Um, in fact, uh, I uh, accepted the interview in Beijing on purpose. I, in fact, I can't accept this interview uh, in Hong Kong. Or, uh, in fact, uh, the crew will go to America. But I, th I feel if I criticize the Chinese government and say something about uh, Chinese situation, the most suitable place is in China. Uh, thank you uh, for care about me, my <laughs> trouble. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I, I must Do you want say, to speak Chinese? Is that better? If you could not understand my English, <laughs> I can speak Chinese. I must say, uh, I don't know, because uh, as uh, Marco Zani mentioned, Chinese situation changed. Maybe recent years, recent months, recent days, we don't know. Thank you. 
I think I think I think Professor Hao Jian is not so naive to think that he's not going to have any consequences. I think the reason that we respect people like him is because for thirty years they know that there will be consequences, but they are still doing what they have been doing, and 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 for that reason, I I think that I, I, that's why he has all our respect. Yes. Uh huh. I have two questions. The uh, first question is for Professor Hao Jian. You just mentioned 3,000 students who died in Tiananmen Square, and I wonder how. I mentioned. Uh, or I. Mm -mm. No, no, or no, 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 no. Maybe now you. I never mentioned. Liu Xiaobo spoke mentioned. Oh, yeah, sorry. sorry. Okay. Liu Xiaobo, he mentioned. And I wonder how. How they died? Are they directly shot by the military, or they died by the with the device? Because in the interview between President Jiang Zemin and uh, Wallace, um, <laughs> uh, our president directly announced that nobody got killed by the military during the Tiananmen Square event. He personally made the announcement during the interview. So that's why I have the first question for you and. Uh, Second question is for Professor Wang, Wang Dan. Uh, I want to ask about the democracy, because as I know, the, we cannot, China cannot imitate, intimate uh, US dem democracy. What I mean is you can, we cannot just use United States, their democracy policies to our countries, because we have different cultures, we have different situations. And how you define the democracy fit to us, to our country. And uh, you just mentioned uh, during Tiananmen Square, students uh, proposed many demands to push our country to be more democratic. And uh, I also see the other people who experienced Tiananmen Square event. They, uh, one, one, one person, he said that um, the government do accept some part of the requirement of the students. But the thing is, students become too radical. They lost the control. They don't want to withdraw the, from the TM Square. That's how the, when the passings come. And uh, I, I, want no, I want to know the truth from you. Thank you, that's my two questions. Can, can I ask quickly, if there's one thing Americans have learned, is that presidents sometimes lie. <laughs> Um, Especially on that day. But, but seriously, I mean, there have been careful analyses of what happened on the late at the night of June 3rd and early on the morning of June 4th. There were many people killed. Exact numbers are still hard to come by. At least hundreds, probably thousands. Many of them, in fact, the majority of them were not students. They were um, bystanders. Ordinary Lao Baixing either had come out to support the protests or were either bystanders. Most, if not all of them, were not killed on the square. That's one thing that's disputed. How many people, if any, were killed on Tiananmen Square? But on the streets near Tiananmen Square, there really is no question that there were people fired upon by soldiers who died. There's also no question that there were at least a couple of soldiers or some soldiers who were killed 
and in one, at least one case burned alive in a, a vehicle. These are, these are, we can talk and we can argue and there needs to be more investigation. A lot, all of us I think would like there to be a full investigation that would allow this, but there is no question that there was a massacre near Tiananmen Square in which many people, including some students, including many people who weren't students, died. That's all I'm going to say. Do you have anything yeah. to add? Uh, would you please translate for me? Okay. Because I thank you very much for your question. They do not need a translator. So uh, whether it's the Chinese government or whether it's the Chinese oh. president or the premier or me, one of us is lying, right? Uh, or CCTV. Uh, blah, blah, so, so I can tell you what, uh, you know, based on my personal experience, um, I did witness one person being shot and uh, and then I, that, that night, I also saw four or five bodies on a cart. They were bloody. And whether they were dead, I don't know for sure. Professor, uh, what is it difficult? Professor so just as Professor Hua Zhijian just pointed out, Chinese government was playing a word, playing a game with words. Is it can is Chang'an Avenue part of Tiananmen Square? Is that that particular that section of Tiananmen, that Chang'an uh, Avenue, that's uh, um, adjacent to the Tiananmen Square. Do you consider that part of Tiananmen Square? In many years, I have always been talking to my friends about the exact Tiananmen Guangchang Tiananmen Guangchang has not killed people. I have heard many so for many years, I believe I thought nobody was killed um, on Tiananmen Square, and uh, I also heard from other people saying that you know nobody was killed on Tiananmen Square. But uh, as the Tiananmen mothers started their investigation as they started to look for truth, new information emerged. Uh, 有三个人, 啊, 
这这个我不敢确认，因为这是我听说听说的。Uh, I have evidence. You can continue. Yeah. 有有是吧 ？Yeah. Yeah. 有三个人是在天安门广场，这个具体的广场里面啊，不包括长安街，啊，不包括北京，被打死的。Um, I know. I heard um, that uh, three people were shot dead. Uh, within Tiananmen Square, we're we're not including the Chang'an Avenue, just the Tiananmen Square proper. 好，那最后说一下我自己亲眼看见的。就刚才我跟你们提到，我跑了大约十几家医院，为了找我堂弟的尸体。我跑了大概十几家医院吧。So again, back to my personal experience,、um, I went to look for my cousin's body. So I went to over ten hospitals. 我自己亲眼见到的身上有子弹的尸体，我不敢肯定的数字，大约有四五十具，大约。嗯哼 ，the bodies with bullets in. Um, of course, you know I didn't count them specifically. I can't give you exact number. But there, there, I saw forty, forty to fifty bodies with bullets in. Uh, 那么至少就是我堂弟这个这个他的这个子弹是，我们到医院的时候还有复兴医院的那个病例我看到的。但是我现在拿不到那个病例了，我也当时我们也没有人想到会去看那个病例，呃，去拿那个病例。当时我是看到那个病例的，是子弹打左肩胛抢救二十分钟后死亡，就是至少我看到的大概是这些。So when I went to Fuqing Hospital, then that、uh, at that time,、uh, I did actually see the my cousin's medical record.、Um, it didn't occur to me to take it back then, and there's no way now for me to get it. But I do remember on the medical record, it stated uh, uh, that uh, the bullet went into his shoulder blade, and uh, um, after 20 minutes of rescue work, he died. 嗯，希望。So I hope my memory、uh, did serve to answer your question. I just wanted to add a couple of extra words as well, just to remind people that the people didn't only die in Beijing, in Chengdu as well.、Uh, the government admitted that eight people were killed, including、uh, two students, and that was according to the government's own propaganda leaflets. But interestingly, in the last couple of years, some new documents have been emerging with other figures as well that would be well worth following up. In the last couple of years, some、uh, British diplomatic cables have been released. Um, that put the figures much, much higher. So originally, the Americans estimated that 300 people would die died in Chengdu,、um, and the British、uh, cables that were released two years ago actually put the figures even higher. They、um, estimate altogether 420 people killed, but they're very, very rough estimates.、Um, and the, but it is worth,、um, I think, noting that. There were deaths in other places as well.
Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there there has been uh, evidence uh, documented in Liu Xiaobo's uh, book uh, uh, by Perry Link, published by Harvard University Press. So his data, of course, on pages five and six in English, so everyone can check. So it's according to the Tianmen mothers' uh, uh, information. The Tianmen mothers are connected. So there were three people that were directly shot and killed in, inside Tiananmen Square, and among them, the three is. A student named called Cheng Renxin. He's a, a student of uh, Renmin Dashi, the People's uh, University, and he was age 25 years old. So again, he was shot and killed right next to the uh, uh, Qigan, uh, the, ne- uh, the, 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 the flagpole in Tiananmen Square. So that's one example. And his family was actually devastated after his father died. His mom tried to hang him herself uh, in the early 90s. And then uh, the, the grandchild saw the grandmother hanging, and then he used his shoulder to do this so that she would uh, not kill her, you know, she would keep until the adults come home. So that's one example. Again, Cheng Renxin, uh, age 25, shot and killed inside Tiananmen Square. But uh, also in t- 2011, the China Daily did publish an article, Tiananmen as a Myth, and then it claimed that based on the WikiLeaks, no one was shot and killed in Tiananmen Square. So there's a, no such a thing called the Tiananmen Massacre. But if you look at the the information collected by the Tiananmen mothers. There were two maps that have been created by volunteers according to this information of 202 victims with specific locations where the body were found and with specific locations where the victims were killed. So only when they have two locations, we put them on the map. So Professor Hao Zhijing's uh, cousin, uh, Professor Hao Jian's cousin Hao Zhijing, he was shot and killed in Mu Shidi. That was one of the major locations where people were shot and killed in the area and Hao Zhijing was shot there too. And then another major location is Liu Buko, where the students were leaving, uh, leaving back to Hai. Then after Tiananmen Square was clear and then they withdraw and the students were mainly crushed by tanks. So those are one of the two major. So it doesn't matter whether people were killed in Tiananmen Square. That's not the central question. The fact is the massacre happened throughout central Beijing, as Professor uh, Jeff Wasserstrom already mentioned that. So it, and, and, and Luisa mentioned that it's other places too. So there is a massacre uh, uh, in Tiananmen Square. We call the Tiananmen Massacre exactly like we call Tiananmen movement. It doesn't mean it's just happening in Tiananmen Square itself. It's a nationwide movement. Tiananmen massacre doesn't mean that it only happened inside Tiananmen Square, but it's throughout central Beijing. And I hope that answers your question about whether there, there, there is a massacre or not. Oh, oh yeah, Wang Dan, sorry. <laughs> I have my job to do, I have finished it. <laughs> yeah, 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 about democracy, uh, I, I think you have a lot of hearsay. I don't know where did you get it. Hao Jian said he didn't see 3,000 people died in Tiananmen Square. And I didn't say I want to use Americans' democracy apply to China. I never see that. If you can give me some link, I'd be appreciated for that. But I don't think I, re- I said that. Um, because I don't know what is so-called United States, United States democracy. I've been studying here at Harvard for 10 years. I never learned what's United States democracy. <laughs> I even feel more confused nowadays about democracy of United States. So I definitely will not apply United States democracy to China. And my definition for democracy is at the early stage of democratization of China, is not to do something. That might, I admit, admit that might lead to some turmoil, but it's not to do something. I think the first stage of democratization, if Chinese government wants to do, is a stop of doing something. Stop doing something, that will not lead to the social turmoil, right? Stop 
put somebody in jail just because they see something on internet, even Chinese people can see it. That's my definition of democracy, not United States. And the students in 1989, they actually have the goddess democracy. That that looks different from the one in, in New York, and, and yes. Uh -huh. yes. <coughs> uh, thank you guys for coming, first of all, especially for Wandan to be here. Um, I wanna ask you guys a question on, I think in the 80s we've seen that, you know, within the CCP there's a lot of struggle between the liberals and the conservatives, and like there is a short-lived period where like, you know, US-China are very close, and then there is, you know, re like liberal reforms going on in China with like freedom of press, freedom of speech, sh again, short-lived. Um, and I would imagine that th those voices that were there to support the student movement at that time should still somehow exist in within the CCP, right? Like we've seen leaders like um, Zhao Ziyang, um, Bao Tong, Wen Jiabao, like those are supposedly people who are sympathetic to the movement. Um, and I was just wondering, like, what are the legacies of the, those leaders within the CCP now? And like, are there like, you know, points of history where they would be allowed to like express those voices str more strongly than they do now? Um, thank you. Meeting. <laughs> <laughs> About the legacy of those uh, liberal leader of CCP, I think maybe that's one I could see is uh, I've been experienced the whole 1980s. I think at that time, those leaders, including Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, and maybe Deng Xiaoping, they, can, they still can give some space to the society. They let the society grow up by themselves uh, at some degree, but now, situation become worse and worse, and under the control of Xi Jinping, society lost their space. And that's why I think the CCP's leader lost the legacy of the Hu Yaobang and the Zhao Ziyang. I don't know what well, other speaker. So I, playing on history, I just wanted to bring up one thing because it can be a very depressing, it is a very depressing moment, thinking about China. But it's 30 years after a massacre and you can't talk about the event and things like that. There's a lot of repression. 30 years after Urba in Taiwan, the 1947 massacre, 30 years after it, there was martial law. You could not talk about it. You could not commemorate it. The leader of Taiwan at that point was Jiang Jingguo, a dictator's son who had run the secret police. Not a sprouts of liberalization kind of leader. But not that much longer because of shifts and all kinds of things. There was, you know, the, you reached a point where there was acknowledgement. There was, now there's a piece, there's a park devoted to Urba. So I don't, you know, I don't see the, the roots of anything like that in China. But I think it's important to not get, I mean, there, this, the changes in authoritarian one-party states. The world has to change. Unexpected things have to happen. But it's important, I think, to not think because you can't see them that there's no chance. And um, I co-wrote a piece with Margaret Lewis on this who had a really, she studies Taiwan and she had a great line. And she said, um, the Communist Party has proved remarkably resilient in recent years, but Taiwan shows you even resilient objects break. So that's one kind of thing to hold on to. But we don't, we don't know when. And we don't know 
when somebody like uh, you know a liberalizing figure could emerge. Thank you so much. I have a question actually in regards to the uh, mobilization during the movement. I'm trying to ask, like, why do you guys think um, the movement succeeded in mobilizing a large number of students into the collective action, which, you know, was risky, right? And, and, and some scholars argue that there's like a dense distribution of colleges in Haiyan district in Beijing. And that's one of the reasons that lowers the cost of communication and monitoring. And I was wondering what are your takes on this topic, on this question? What do we ask? How, it's your question is how did us organize a large number of students? Why, why, why do you think the movement succeeded in mobilizing a large number of students? Oh, oh dear, yeah, same question. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> really, you know, we have a very first parade which happened in uh, April 17, late night, oh, April 17. Mm -hmm. Nobody organized it. Mm -hmm. Somebody dropped a, how to say English, Lian Pen. Is a, how to say Lian Pen? <laughs> what, what, what is Lian Pen? Is a, a basin, right? Basin. This is somebody drop a basin in, 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 the, in the restroom. Kwang Long, there's a huge <laughs> Everybody go to the, go to the uh, 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 triangle, or some, some, some location. Then we get together, then we go to Tiananmen Square. I don't know why that student do that, but uh, so I don't know how to. I mean, under some circumstance and under some atmosphere, that's why we all always decide it's not intentionally organized the movement. So a movement is just uh, depend on the willingness of students themselves. We didn't organize them. My opinion, the Tiananmen massacre is a result of 1980s. During, mm. 19, during the 10 years, that's the real reopening and the reform period. Of China. I believe in 1989, the communist totalitarian regime crept with Western value. You know, we always talk about 1980s in China. Even now, we always talk about it. Uh, in 19, during the 10 years, we read a lot of foreign uh, books, oh, the two books you mentioned, and a lot of the uh, Hollywood movie, and uh, oh, translated by Jiang Qing. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, as Wang Dan said, because the collapse happened, so we don't need to move anyone. No one Dong uh, Yuan mobilized. Yeah, that's happened. Uh, I believe the collapse, maybe that's happened today. Okay, okay. Uh, I can give you a more serious answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the process of organization of such a mass movement in 1989, self self-discipline is very important. We as leaders just follow students, and all those students they have really high level of self-discipline. 
Professor Chen Weiping. Hmm.中文是吗？OK，可以。嗯，好，谢谢。呃，郝建教授一开始说，这是他第一次公开的谈六四。我在这方面跟他有很多共同的记忆。So Professor Hao Jian mentioned at the beginning that this is the first time he's he can and he's openly talking about June Fourth. I actually shared that common memory with him. 一直到一九九九年，也就是说八九六四十年之后，呃，我和郝建教授才第一次谈到六四的问题。虽然我们已经同事多年，而且甚至我还是他的表亲，我们都没有谈过这件事。So it was ten years after the June Fourth incident. It was only in nineteen 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 ninety nine that Professor Hao Jian and I were able to start talking about June Fourth. Even though we had been colleagues for many many years, we also have some. We were also sort of a distant relatives. 呃，二十年前，也就是像今天这样一个春天百花怒放的时刻，我们还好好活着。可是。可是郝建带我去了墓地，去了万阳公墓，然后我们看，我第一次看到了，呃，公墓里面那些，呃，六四的遇难者的墓碑，我非常的震撼。So twenty years ago, it was in the spring day. It was in the spring like this. You know, the flowers were all blooming, and uh, you know, I was having a sort of a normal life. And then Professor Hao Jian took me to the cemetery. Um, that was the first time. You know, that was the first time I saw all the uh, tombstones, uh, all the tombs of the uh, people who died uh, on June fourth. From that day on, we became good friends. In the issue of the six, we. 嗯，就紧紧的叫，嗯，也可以说团结在一起吧。嗯，我刚才想，记忆可以使得使得我们记忆可以帮助拯救我们。呃，从六四之后的那种沉默的或者失语的状态当中，呃，恢复过来。呃
in two, from 2009 to 2014, um, we have been pushing, we have been uh, organizing and participating in various events relating uh, to the to June 4th. Despite our close ties and our you know, many years of working together, today was the very first time that I heard the story of Hao Zhijing, Hao Jian's cousin. So my question for Hao Qian is after you had found Hao Zhijing, um, was was it you who notified his parents? Did his parents what was his parents' reactions? Did they come to Beijing? What were their lives like after they learned about their son's death? So we we actually we looked for Hao Zhijing's body. We looked for Hao Zhijing for uh, about half a month, and the more we looked, the more we felt, you know, probably the news wouldn't be good. So we actually um, uh, uh, got uh, Hao Zhijing's father to Beijing first, without uh, even knowing for sure uh, his where uh, Hao Zhijing's whereabouts. Uh, so when we found him, his body actually was in a big freezer in Beijing, in Fuxing Hospital. There were also other, there were also eight other bodies there. 呃，尸体是全身是乌灰的，因为涂呃撒了很多的防腐剂，所以尸体变乌黑。So the bodies were all, you know, jet black because there was a lot of uh, um, um, chemicals on them to, to prevent them from uh, getting rotten, getting rot.找到尸体以后，把他母亲接到北京，然后呃，在北京办了后事。so it was only after we found the body that uh, we uh, got his mother to, to Beijing and uh, we had a funeral. Hao Zhijing was his parents' only son, only child. Now his parents are both, uh, you know, they're old and uh, they're childless. That's uh, part of one of the reasons that uh, I, you know, I go back to China and I just told you guys that I would definitely be going back to China. 
非常感谢崔平教授提这个关于个人的生活经验的这么细节的问题，而不是大历史的假设走向。Uh huh. I I'm very grateful to Professor Cui Ping for raising this question, for asking about the personal side of the you know the personal experience, asking the parents' personal experience instead of just focusing on big history, big trends. 最后介绍一句崔玉平，崔玉平教授就是那个我的学生说，哎，你不是好见的学生吗？你要因为一个警察配一个我们学校的人，嗯，啊，你。跟踪郝建不合适，你跟另外一个警察去跟踪崔卫平去。呃<笑>、uh, ，so a little last a little bit of story, a little bit of a, a information about、uh, about Professor、uh, Cui Ping, right?、Mm -hmm. So anyway, so in in our in our school, it's、uh, one policeman following one one professor, right?、Um, but、uh, since the the initial policeman that was assigned to follow me was my student, so they assigned him to follow. Uh, Professor Cui. Thank you, Professor Cui Ping. Thank you, Professor Cui Ping. I I know time's up, but we, I saw a lot of hands.、Uh, so are we supposed to leave on time or? or? Okay, no more talk. Maybe on on the back. Yeah, the okay, the gentleman. Yeah. I, Oh,、uh, the back. Okay, okay, okay. Hi. Uh, thanks for your presentations. Uh, I I apologize if my questions are um controversial. Uh, I'm I'm very sorry for your losses and you know the tragedies that's caused by by the、uh, Tiananmen event. But as but but my question is more focused on uh the question that Wang then. Discussed, which was, what would China be like、um, if Tiananmen Square succeeded? But my question is, what what would, what would happen to China if、uh, Tiananmen Square did not happen?、Uh, and we also know at 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 the time,、uh, I think Deng Xiaoping was、uh, open to reforms. So, do you think that the Tiananmen uh, uh, incident further?、Um, Eradicated that possibility of reform.、Uh, I mean, if you just waited a few more a few more years after 1989, would the reform happens?、Um, so basically, the Tiananmen Square caused the increased repression that the Chinese people are are feeling now. Okay, thank you. That's typically my question. I have this question many times.、Um, What happened in 1989? There are two things. I think this is a big, a very big misunderstanding about what happened in 1989. Is we just called it June Fourth? No, that's not only June Fourth. There's two things that happened in 1989. One is 1989 democracy movement. Two, that's crackdown on June Fourth by the government. That's two things. Yes, the progress stopped, but not by the student movement. By the crackdown by the government, I mean, student movement, student have every right on constitution of China to go to street to express their opinion. There's nothing to criticize them, but government have choice. You can accept those two very moderate requirement, and you can bloody crackdown it. 
and turn China to another way. So it was not students should take this responsibility. Definitely government should take this responsibility. And also in Zhao Ziyang's secret memo that Adi was one of the co-editors, he make it very clear. One of the three reasons the student participated in 1989, number three reason was because after 1987, when Hu Yaobang and, and, and Fang Liji were ousted, the reform had already came to a standstill. And that was the reason the student think that they should take to the street and push for the political reform instead of uh, like uh, the, the movement itself stopped the reform. So I I just say you you actually can't okay. disentangle it quite that way, because um, what happened after 1989 was also the unraveling of Communist Party rule in Eastern Europe and the breakup of the Soviet Union and a lot of the repression now is done in the name of preventing any possibility for the kind of changes that happened there. So. There are more things involved than just internal to China. It's, it's, a, perfect, it's a really interesting question, but I think uh, there are all kinds of ways that, that history can, uh, can unfold. Okay, so I have to be... Oh, there, there's more. Okay, so uh, our, our, our Communist Party leader tell us to stop now. <laughs> Not Michael, uh, just me. <laughs> okay, dictatorship. Uh, so I, I appreciate all the infuse. Uh, I, I see that you have more questions. I apologize. Uh, it's all my fault that uh, we run out of time now. Uh, so uh, you're welcome to come up to talk to our speakers. And thank you so much for coming today. Um, truth and reconciliation. Without truth, there would be no reconciliation. So China has to face its past in order to have a future. And, 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 and I'm sure that we will see change, if not in my lifetime, as my uh, late mentor, Professor Mafaga, if not in my lifetime, then in yours, uh, the younger generations. Thank you. Thank you.